Well, it is a great joy to be with your church today. I love your pastor, love his family, and grow and love this church. What a great thing the Lord is doing in this place, and I'm happy for you and happy to get to spend the Lord's Day with you. If you have a Bible with you, I want you to hold it up in the air just a moment, would you please? You have a copy of the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? Oh, it liveth and abideth forever, the Bible says. I want you to open it with me, please, to the book of Genesis, if you will, in this hour. And I want to tell you a story in just a moment. Uh, that is the story of the ages. It's the story of every book of the Bible. Uh, it is the Christmas story. Uh, in our home, I don't know what your habit is, but in our home on Christmas Day, before we open gifts and get into all of that, we all sit down and we read the Christmas story together. I'm curious, how many of you do that with your family? You read the Christmas story. I'd recommend that to you. And it's a great thing to do. As a matter of fact, one of our kids said to me the other day, I never get to read the story. Can I do it this year? And so it's become a tradition in our home, and I love doing that. Normally when we read the Christmas story, we turn to either the gospel according to Matthew or the gospel according to Luke. And those, of course, are the traditional stories of Christmas. But I want to say to you today that the story of Christmas is the story of Christ, and it can be found on every page of the Word of God. You see, Jesus did not begin at Bethlehem. The Holy Spirit did not begin at Pentecost. Christ is eternal God. He has always been, He is today, and He will always be. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Which means from the very first pages of Scripture, we find Christ. It's interesting, but later in the Word of God, the Bible refers to Him as the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Let me just boggle your mind for a minute before we read the Bible verse together. Think of this. Before God ever created the world, Christ was already on the cross. Before God ever made man and breathed in his nostrils the breath of life, before Eve was ever taken and made out of the rib from Adam's side, before any of that, before the fall of man in Genesis 3, in the mind of an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-wise God, his son was already on that tree. Somebody says, explain that to me. I can't explain that to you. All I can say to you is that God, who knows the end from the beginning, always has a plan, and he is always working his plan. And the great encouragement to me is the same God who is writing the story in Genesis, the same God who is writing the story in Matthew, the same God who is writing the story in Luke, is the same God who is writing the story today. And you and I get to be a part of the grand story of Christ's work in this world. I bring you to Genesis chapter 3, to one verse and one verse only today, because this is a powerful verse. Now, every verse of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Let me back up. Every word of Scripture is given by inspiration of God, which means nothing in the Bible is there by accident. How many of you believe that? Nothing is there just by chance. God chose it. So when you come to this verse, every word is significant, and I want you to see that today. It is Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. I wonder, would you read it out loud with me today? Genesis 3 and verse number 15. Ready? And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. This is a fascinating verse. The great theologians refer to this verse as what they call the proto-evangelium. That's just a big word for it's the first promise of the Messiah. In other words, all through the Word of God, many prophecies concerning Christ, this is the first. The law of first mention says the first time something is introduced to us in Scripture, it is very, very significant. 
which means the verse you just read with me, Genesis 3, verse 15, is a verse you ought to know. As a matter of fact, I would challenge you to memorize it, to meditate on it. When I finish preaching in a few moments, I hope you'll understand more deeply what it means. And by the way, it's not just theory. It's not just some abstract thing. No, no, very practical to where you live today. You see, Christ is in this verse. And this is the story of why Christ came and what he's up to at this present hour. It's interesting to me, but the first Christmas story was not given in Bethlehem. The first Christmas story was given in a garden. It was not given on a quiet, peaceful night like everybody talks. The first Christmas story was given in the midst of a battle for the souls of men and women. The first Christmas story was not given to shepherds by an angelic choir. The first Christmas story was given to the devil. You see, Genesis 3 verse 15 is the record of God speaking to Satan, to the serpent that beguiled Eve in the garden just after the fall of Adam and Eve. It is serious, serious business. It's interesting to me, but this book of beginnings is something that is so pertinent to us at the end of time. I said to a group of people earlier this morning, I believe we're living on the edge of eternity. I really believe that. I believe any moment Jesus may come. I think the next thing on God's agenda is the rapture of the church, and I think I'm living on the edge of it right now, and any moment I might hear the trump, and we'd be out of here. Uh, look, I'd love to go to heaven from Toledo, Ohio. Frankly, I'd like to go from anywhere, but this would be a great place. I wouldn't have to get on an airplane, fly home tomorrow. I'd meet my family in the clouds, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That'd be all right with me. But here's what's interesting to me. Those of us who are living on the end of time at the revelation of Jesus Christ should pay very close attention to what God said at the beginning of time. Why is that? Because with God, the story is all connected. In other words, you don't separate Genesis from Revelation. You don't separate the Old Testament from the New. You don't separate the prophecies from their fulfillment. So what on earth is Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15 all about? I'm glad you asked. Let me show you. It's a powerful verse. Look at it with me. The Bible says, And I will put enmity between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her what? Would you circle that word in your Bible? Number one, the story of Christmas, the story of Christ, is the story of Christ coming. That's what the little word seed means. It's a reminder, church, that God became a man without ever ceasing to be God. The Lord Jesus, who has always been, as a matter of fact, Genesis 3 is the first time he's mentioned, but Genesis 1 is the first time he's seen. Because in Genesis 1, it was Christ who is engaged in the creative process. Colossians tells us that he was the firstborn in creation. In other words, he was the one there when it said light and there was light. He was the one that spoke the worlds into existence. All things were made by him and for him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And yet when you come to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 15, he's not coming as creator. He's coming as Savior, as Messiah as deliverer, excuse me, as rescuer. When I read this verse, I just got to tell you, my heart is moved. See, I'm a sinner. Let me tell you my story. Would you like to know my story? My story is I'm a black-hearted, hell-deserving sinner. If I got what I deserve, I'd be burning in fire this morning, and I'd be there forever. 
but I'm not there, praise God. And blessed be Jesus, I'm never going there. Because Christ came. Why did he come? Why would the perfect Son of God, holy and sinless, lay aside the free expression of his deity? Why would he humble himself and become a man? Why would he come to a little spot on the map called Bethlehem? Why would he be raised in a village named Nazareth that no good thing could come out of? What's this all about? Would you back up and look at the word right before seed? Notice what the Bible says. It is her seed. Now that's strange. Because if you know anything about the natural birth process, the seed is not the woman's, it's the man's. And yet this is the only time in Scripture where the Bible refers not to the man's seed, but to the woman's seed. Listen to me. Jesus did not come through the line of Joseph. He came through the line of Mary. As a matter of fact, if you read Luke chapter number 3, you get the genealogical record of Mary. And I'm just going to tell you, in Eastern custom, they didn't give the genealogy of the wife. And the genealogy of the woman was meaningless to them. It was the genealogy of the husband. And yet it's a reminder that the Son of God did not have a natural birth. He had a supernatural birth. This is a reference to the virgin-born Son of God. That Jesus Christ came into this world without any aid of man. It was all of God the Father. He has a heavenly father and an earthly mother. It's a reminder of his incarnation. It's a reminder of his virgin birth. But more than that... It's a reminder of grace. Would you put yourself in the story for a minute? Go with me. 4,000 years before Christ. 4,000 years before Bethlehem. And I want you to stand in a garden. And I want you to watch her weep. Her name's Eve. She's the mother of all living. I think she's probably the most beautiful woman God ever made. She's perfect. She's the only woman in history who could say she had a perfect husband. Think of that for just a minute. She's the only woman that had the perfect home. Perfect. You don't get better than the Garden of Eden. It's just a reminder that we don't need better circumstances. We need to stay right with God. That's what it's a reminder of. And there she stands to the side of the garden, tears streaming down her face. What's wrong, Eve? Now, Eve's going to tell you, well, Adam should have been there. And Eve's going to tell you, well, the serpent beguiled me. But in her honest moments, Eve's going to tell you, I blew it. I messed up. I took the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden, and I knew what would happen if I took it, and I excused it, and I schemed, and I reasoned it away, and I'm standing here now a broken woman. And the truth is, I know that my kids are going to suffer because of it. As a matter of fact, soon she'll go to a piece of ground that they used to till, and she'll bury her son. He'll be killed by his own brother. Pretty rough, isn't it? Soon she'll be banned from the Garden of Eden, and an angel will stand there with a flaming sword to keep the way of the tree of life, and Eve will know, I did this. My sin, my failure, not God, mine. And in the midst of that, I love this. God points to this broken woman and says, Yet out of this mess and through this woman's seed, the Savior will come. Fast forward. Fast forward now to Matthew and to Luke and watch him choose another young girl, innocent and pure and clean, 
a virgin and say, I'm going to choose to use her to bring my own son into the world. Let me tell you what this is. To me, this is a reminder of the amazing grace of our God. It's a reminder that no matter how bad a sinner you are, how broken you are, how messed up you may be, how out of control the circumstances seem, listen to me, our God is merciful and kind and loving and gracious. He could never love you any more and he cannot love you any less. He doesn't just love, he is love. He loves you with an everlasting love. And he loved Adam and he loved Eve even in their fallen condition. And it's a reminder that when we could not come to him, he came to us. And I'm looking around today at lots of wonderful people and you dress beautifully and everybody looks like Christmas and everybody's dressed up for the Lord's day and it's great. But let's just be honest with ourselves. Beneath the surface, we are all ugly sinners. And there is a rebel heart in every one of us. And I want to say to you today, it's very important that you remember that you are nothing and Christ is everything and that you do not get to heaven through your own merit, and you do not even merit the goodness and blessing of God every day here and now. You know, some of us who've grown up around church, we've been around this a while, and we know how to say amen at all the right places, and we've memorized the Bible verses. After a while, we start thinking we're really something. Let me just remind you, we are nothing, and Christ is everything. And we are fallen, broken people in desperate need of this woman's seed. And praise Jesus. He came to us. What is the story of Christmas? Oh, it's the story of Christ coming, but that's not all. Go back to our verse, would you please? When I stop, you say the next word. And I will put... Let's try that one again. Let's review. When I stop, you say the next word. Ready? And I will put... Hmm. Between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel it's interesting but in this story of peace and good tidings and joy hey friends there's a war going on it is not only the story of christ coming it is the story of christ conflict it's interesting but there are two words one at the beginning of the verse one at the end of the verse that are battle words one is the word enmity you know what the word enmity means it means we're at odds it means we're enemies we're not friends can I tell you what you find in Genesis chapter 3? You find a spiritual conflict going on. Somebody said, well, who was the conflict between, all right? Was it between Satan and man? Yes, yes, there was that conflict for sure. There was an attack. They weren't ready for it. They weren't prepared for it. They had a plan for everything but the devil, not like us. And they were wounded in that attack. There's that battle going on. Wait a minute, is there a battle between man and God? You better believe that. You see, our sinful hearts rear their ugly head up just like the devil. We want our way. <laughs> Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'll make my own decisions. I know what's best for me. And there's always this battle of the wills between us and God. But I want you to step back from all of that for a minute. There's a bigger war going on. Those are battles within the war. Those are skirmishes being, being played out, but there is a bigger war. What's the war? Listen to me, please. It's a war between a holy God and the devil. Do you ever wonder, do you ever wonder why all through history the Jews have been such hated people? Do you ever wonder 
why Pharaoh wanted them wiped out? Do you ever wonder why Haman wanted the lion killed? Do you ever wonder why Herod said, kill all the baby boys? And then you ever wonder who's behind that? Let me just remind you of something. Behind every hateful, ugly thing in this world, the devil's working. And everything God ordains, Satan opposes. Listen to me. When God is at work, so is his arch enemy. God made trees and birds and water and animals, and the devil sat back and did nothing. But God made Adam and Eve, and immediately Satan went to work. Why? Because the devil knew that was the one thing he could strike at that would hurt the loving heart of God. You see, there was only one thing in that garden for which God came walking through in the cool of the day, and that was fellowship with Adam and with Eve. Now, I don't know about you, but this blows my mind. A holy God wants to fellowship with me. You know what we are? Specks of dust on the page of human history. That's what we are. A piece of lint. I mean, honestly, do we think we're that important? Do you really think the devil wants you, wants your family, wants your kids, wants your grandkids, wants this church because we are that important? No, no, that's not it. The devil wants you because you are that important to God. Why does the devil want to damn a soul to hell? Just to get a soul? No. The devil wants to damn every soul to hell because he knows that every soul that goes to hell hurts the heart of a God who loved us so much he gave his son so no one would ever have to go to hell. Why does the devil want to destroy a family? Some of you right now, right now in your home, you're under spiritual attack. Maybe you haven't even yet discerned that it's the devil Maybe you're still doing what Adam and Eve did and you're blaming each other. And you missed it. You missed it. Behind all that conflict, there's a, there's a greater conflict. The devil's after you. The devil's trying to drive a wedge there. Why? Because the devil knows if he can splinter your family, he can grieve the heart of a father who's all about family. A God who ordained the home to be a little picture of his heaven and his peace on earth. You ever wonder why the devil tries to get in a church? Now, maybe the devil never tries to get in this church. I don't know. But I grew up in a preacher's home. And I grew up around church. My grandpa used to say, if you find a perfect church, don't go there. You'll mess it up. He was exactly right. There's no perfect church. And I watch the devil get in churches sometimes, and people get division and strife and contention. and People sit across the auditorium with each other, won't even speak to each other. And I think, that can't be God's way. Oh, it's not God's way. It's the devil's way. And you know why the devil wants to disrupt a church? Because he knows if he can do that, he can grieve the heart of a loving God. And I'm going to tell you something. That conflict is still going on at this moment. Watch this. I love this. And instead of God saying, well, you can have them. I mean, they've already disobeyed me and failed me. And I wipe my hands of them. They're yours. No. Instead of that, Jesus Christ, who never sinned, stepped into the battle for us. Jesus Christ came to the front where Satan was launching his greatest attack against God's prized creation, and the Lord Jesus took our wounds. There's a word I had you mark the end of the verse. It is this word, bruise. Can I tell you what the story of Christmas is? We like the picture of the little baby in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger, and somebody said, isn't that sweet? Isn't it funny how they're okay with the baby, but they don't want the cross? Now I'll tell you why. Because this little baby is cuddled and coddled, and that's all nice. 
But down here, there's a man being bruised. And why is he bruised? For you. For me. Would you look at him for a moment? Would you look at him standing in the place of the pavement? They called it Gabbatha. Would you look as they rip his coat from his body and he stands in naked shame and they slap him and bruise the beautiful face of the Son of God. And then, then they plait a crown of thorns on his brow and bruise his head. And then they tie him to a stake and they beat him. They beat him so long and so hard with that cat of nine tails that the prophet said his visage was more marred than any man. When they were finished with him, you could not even tell he was a human being. He was bruised. And every time, every time that whip pulled from his torso, it tore more flesh from his bones until literally his internal organs were exposed. It was awful. And then they said, you carry your own cross. And the bruised back, the Son of God picked up a tree that he had spoken into existence. Think of it. Carried it to a mountain that he created. And then they took long spikes and drove them through his hands and through his feet. Bruised. Then they lift the tree up and it drops down into the hole that's dug for it. And now his bones are all out of joint. They look and stare at him, the Bible says. And his whole body is bruised. Can I ask you a question? What's that all for? I mean, how's that the Christmas story? Well, Genesis 3.15 tells you. Listen, please. Isaiah 53 verse 5 says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was, what church? Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Can I tell you the only reason we have forgiveness and peace and mercy and the love of God today is because Jesus Christ was bruised for me and he was bruised for you. He was wounded so we could be healed. He took death so we could take life. He took darkness so we could take light. He took hell so we could go to heaven. He did battle with the devil so we could know God. What is the story of Christmas? It's the story of Christ's coming. It is the story of Christ's conflict. Hallelujah, that's not all. Would you look at our verse? And I will put enmity between thee and the woman. And between thy seed and her seed, now don't miss it, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Matthew Henry said, the heel was bruised on earth, but the head was safe in heaven. What did he mean by that? Now let me ask you a question. Which is worse, a heel bruise or a head wound? You tell me, which one? Head wound. You ever had a heel bruise? It's annoying, isn't it? You ever had a stone bruise on your heel? You have to limp around for a few days, whine around about how much it hurts and tell everybody so they'll feel sorry for you. Three or four days, it's better. It's all right. Listen to me. A heel bruise is not a mortal wound. But a head wound? Hmm. 
Now that can be. Now that in mind, look back at our verse. I love the picture that God gives us here. He says, look, you're going to bruise the heel of the woman's seed. That's Christ. But that same seed is going to turn around and bruise your head. Let me ask you, church, how do you kill a snake? Try it. Chop its head off. I grew up on a farm in West Virginia. Only snake is a dead snake. Good snake is a dead snake. I hate snakes. We used to carry around a garden hoe around the farm just looking for them, you know. It was great fun. How many of you like snakes? Would you raise your hand? There's something wrong with you people. I want you to know that, all right? In reality, this serpent is not just a serpent. It's the devil channeling through the snake. And I love this. The creator God says to that snake, we're going to cut your head off. That's right. We're going to bruise your head. How does that happen? May I say to you, out yonder in the wilderness, Jesus tempted of the devil. His heel was being bruised. In the garden of Gethsemane, look at him pray, and his sweat becomes great drops of blood. I believe the devil's trying to keep him from getting to the cross. And he prays, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. His heel is bruised. Look at him. Look at him on that cross. His heel is bruised. But I tell you, when the cry pierced the darkness and Jesus thundered from that cross to tell us thy it is finished, at that moment he inflicted a head wound to the devil for time and for all eternity. When you go to the empty tomb, what do you find? Victory. Christ conquering. And 40 days later on a mountain outside of Jerusalem, Jesus lifts his hands in blessing and has ascended back to the Father and the clouds receive him out of their sight. By the way, the last picture those disciples had of their Savior was of him with his hands raised in blessing. Can I tell you, I believe the hands are still raised in blessing at this very moment. Where is Christ? He ever liveth making intercession for you and I. Where is Jesus this morning? He is praying for you at the right hand of the Heavenly Father. A woman came to me a few minutes ago weeping, and she said, I'm praying for you today. That meant more to me than she will ever know. My wife said to me on the phone a little while ago, I'm praying for you today. I thank God for that, but I thank God for something greater. If not a single person on earth, remember to pray for Scott Pauley this morning. I know this. I know Jesus is praying for me at this moment. And some of you who are in the battle of your life, you need to hear this. Christ is praying for you. And the devil and all the hounds of hell may be against you, but Jesus is praying for you. And by the way, he always gets his prayers answered. Robert Murray McShane said, if I could hear Jesus praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a thousand enemies. Then he stopped and said, but the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. You may not be able to see him. You may not be able to hear him at this moment, but the Christmas story is not just a babe in a manger. The Christmas story is that Christ came, Christ did conflict with the devil, and Christ conquered in the end. May I say this to you? How's this story all going to end? With victory. I want you to hold your place at Genesis 3.15 show you something interesting. Go with me to the New Testament book of Romans chapter 16 just a minute. Oh, what a glorious verse this is. What a promise. Come with me to Romans chapter 16 verse 20. Claim this for your own life, for your family today. The Bible says, and the God of peace, that's our God, shall, what's the next word, church? What's it say in your Bible? Bruise. Interesting word. Bruise Satan. Don't miss it. Under your feet shortly. I have this mental picture. 
of a little dog. Yip, yip, yip. Nipping at the heels of someone. I was out <coughs> running the other day, and a little dog got after me, nipping at my heels. That's an annoying little thing. You ever have a little dog after you? They make a lot of noise, nipping at your heels. Look, that's the devil chasing Christ. That's right. And the other picture I have is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, the risen, ascended, victorious Son of God, coming in all of His glory, watch this please, with His foot on the head of that serpent. And I'm going to tell you something, Christ wins in the end. And can I tell you the grandest thing? We win with Him. Look at the verse. Satan is not just under Christ's feet, he's under what? Our feet. How's he under our feet? Through Christ. And can I tell you this morning, the only victory in life is through the Lord Jesus. Now listen to me, church. I know we're going to have victory in the end. I know that. I know when Christ comes, the devil's going to be shut up forever. He's going to be cast into the bottomless pit. We're not going to have to deal with him anymore. How many of you are looking forward to that day? That'll be a good day, right? Listen to me. I believe Christ designed the Christian life so that we could have victory now, not just later. As a matter of fact, would you listen with your heart for a moment? I believe that God has designed it so we can have victory in the battle, not just after the battle. Do you understand that in the garden, God made a way for Adam and Eve to be victorious again? And do you understand that you don't have to wait till you die or Jesus comes and all the problems go away and everything gets made right in the world for you to live in victory and peace and joy and blessing. God has designed through Jesus Christ that you can live the victorious life right now. And I want to ask you a personal question. No one can answer but you. Are you walking in victory at this moment? I did not say, have you ever had it? And I did not ask, are you going to have it? I ask. At this moment in your Christian life, are you walking in victory? Because if you're not, you're missing the conquering work of Christ, the work that makes us more than conquerors that God promised through His Son, the Lord Jesus, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse number 15. Listen to me. Christ wins. Christ conquers. Greater is He that is in us than he that is in the world. Every time a soul is saved, Christ wins. Every time you pray and God hears and answers your prayer, Christ wins. Every time you open the Bible in your home and read to your children and teach them the truth of God's Word, Christ wins. Every time this church moves forward by faith, takes another step to reach others with the gospel, Christ wins. Every time a believer learns what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit, Christ wins. Every time you lift your voice and worship God and give Him praise and glory to His name, Christ wins. And I say to you today, Christ wants to win in you at this moment. How does that happen? Only when we say to Jesus, Jesus... I'm nothing and you're everything, and I need you. One of your good men and I were talking between the meetings this morning, and I said to him in the course of our conversation, you only enter into victory through faith, and I believe that. Some of you are sitting here today, and you may not even be sure you're a Christian. You know, religious people go to hell. Sitting in a church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sitting in a garage makes you a car. It does not change your nature. It does not change who you are. You want the victory? Then you must come by simple faith and take Jesus as your Savior. 
But here's what's so ironic, Pastor, and I see it everywhere I go. I meet people that understand you get saved by faith. That's it, by faith. And they came by faith to Christ, and now they're living in total, utter defeat. How's that possible? Because they miss the most simple truth of the Christian life. And that is the only way to live in victory is the same way you came to know Christ, and that is by faith. And I have no idea who I'm talking to this morning. There are burdens in this room. There are needs in families. There are hurts in hearts. There are bruised people. You say, how do you know that? Because everywhere you go, there's bruised people and wounded hearts. And I came to tell you today, only Jesus can heal them, and he only does it by faith. In 1738, a man by the name of Charles, he had been a very religious man. He and his brother had started a little club, a Bible study of sorts at Oxford University. He even went on a mission trip telling the heathen about Christ. Charles had never been born again. In 1738, Charles came to the end of himself. He would later write, on that glorious day, the Holy Spirit chased away the darkness of unbelief. And I put my childlike faith in Christ and Christ alone. It was a good day. His full name was Charles Wesley. Maybe you've heard of him. Charles Wesley was just a young Christian. He had been saved less than a year as they approached Christmas 1739. Wesley, who was very musical, sat down in his home one day and took out a blank piece of paper and a pen and said, I think I'll write a hymn for Christmas Day, a hymn that we can sing in our church. And for the very first time, he wrote these words. Hark the herald angels sing. Glory to the newborn king. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. I got to tell you, this is one of my favorite Christmas carols. I like Hark the herald angels sing. But you know what's sad? Most people don't know the fourth verse. And to me, it's the best of all. Wesley wrote, Come, desire of nations, come. Fix in us thy humble home. Don't miss it. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Bruise in us the serpent's head. I don't know about you, that sounds a lot like Genesis 3.15 to me. And so my invitation today is a simple one. And frankly, it's for every person here. I'm about to ask every person here to make a decision. Everybody. And if you say, I'm not making a decision, you made yours already. You made the wrong one. I'm going to ask this morning, how many people in this auditorium would be willing to make this their prayer? To take Genesis 3.15 and say, Lord, I know you're the victor. Would you bruise Satan's head in my life? Would you conquer in me? Would you win the victory in the conflict that I'm in? Would you be glorified in it? Powerful how one verse can speak to you this way. George Mueller was about to die. Mueller prayed in millions for his orphanage and was mightily used of God and had miracles. I mean, honestly, just miracle after miracle after miracle. You couldn't explain it any other way. And they asked an aging George Mueller, how'd you get all these answers to prayer? How'd you live in such victory and see such mighty things done for God? And an old George Mueller got down on his knees and opened his Bible, 
put his finger on a verse. And with tears, he said, every morning when I got up, I got down on my face and opened the Word of God. And I read till I found a verse that was one of God's great promises. And he said, I put my finger on the verse just like this. And I looked up to heaven and I said, God, you promised. And today I'm claiming that promise for my life. And he said it was amazing. But God never failed to keep his promise. And so I wonder today how many people will get out on their knees, put their finger on Genesis 3.15 and say, I want to claim that power, that victory, that Christ for my life. Look, friends, the battle's not between you and somebody else. Excuse me, Adam, Eve. It's not between the two of you. And the battle's not just between you and the devil. No, the battle's already been won. It's between Christ and Satan. And Christ has already conquered. And if you'll let him, he'll write another chapter in this wonderful Christmas story with you and your life at this moment. And he'll bruise in you the serpent's head.